Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. And since then has started Buddhist centers around the world, based in California, and is the editor of Mandala, the international news magazine of the Foundation for the Preservation of the Mahayana Tradition. She's actively involved with working with Buddhists in prison, writing to some 60 men in prisons throughout the U.S., helping them with their practice and studies. She visits many of them in California, Massachusetts, Kentucky, North Carolina, Virginia, and Michigan, giving teachings in groups and meeting one-to-one. Some of these men are on death row or have life sentences, and some have been actively involved in gangs, both on the streets and in prison. Uh, With love, Alicia. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we look forward to your presentation very much. Okay. And thank Good. you so much for being here with us. Uh-huh. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Happy to be here. I think I'm allowed to talk about anything, right? I think I'm allowed to talk about anything, right? You can write about anything. Okay. And since we're nothing, whatever you choose. Okay. No, I have a very quick mouth, so I'll probably be talking about a few things. Well, I suppose one of the things, things you brought up, the, the guys in prison, and incidentally, it's interesting that it's mostly men. I mean, we, we've got, we, we send Mandela to about 300 people, and we get new people every month who write to us and ask, and it's one person is a woman for some reason. I don't know why. It's very curious. But, so the other 299 we send our magazine to, and then we send books to many, many others. Well, one of the things that I've really gotten from working with these guys in prison, which has been the last four years, it started, yeah, 96, I got a letter from... Uh, we got a letter at our office from a young guy, 19-year-old Mexican, gangs, you know, gangster from Los Angeles, and quite a few of the people that I talk to, uh, write to and communicate with are Mexicans. Um, what really strikes me about them, it really has helped me hugely in these last four years to really kind of home in on exactly what the point of being a Dharma practitioner, what's the point of being a Buddhist, you know. I think... We can all have a... I mean, everyone in this room maybe would, get, would give a different answer if we said, what is a Buddhist? Because it usually is re- relating to what it is that we need in our life. So one of the things that I see with these guys, because they're in places that are like hell holes, you know, it doesn't matter what they got there for, their, their fault or not is not the point here. What, what truly impresses me and humbles me is the way that uh, those who are practicing really do use this kind of appalling situation to try and find something, to try and find their own, you know, their own potential. Especially a lot, of, I mean, because of course the majority, I mean, you know, the majority of these people that I, we're communicating with, you know, are either Mexican or black or poor, whatever, the usual kind of cliches we know about are people in prison, but it really is true, but they are the ones, they're the ones, somehow the ones you'd think are most likely, you know, to be really using their incredibly intelligent minds and really investigating the meaning of reality. So the thing that really strikes me about all of them is how they, um, the ones who, you know, who reading the teachings and thinking about karma, which, you know, is the very heart of Buddha's teachings about what reality is. And certainly I know in the Tibetan tradition, 
as you might, you know, as you know, there's a strong emphasis on really studying Buddha's teachings quite intensively, not just to get a head full of knowledge, but to actually use it as a basis for the way you lead your life, you know. And that's certainly something for me that I found very powerful, being a nun, being a Buddhist. Other teachings on karma, and for me, the implication of this is really learning to take responsibility. I mean, really learning to understand that due to past actions, I am now in the situation that I'm in. So one of the things that strikes me about these guys is that they really take that to heart. I mean, one of the places where you can completely almost, you know, happily feel a victim is where, you know, in a prison, where it's just truly like a nightmare. The violence, the, the unbelievable kind of noise. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's like a nightmare. It's inconceivable if we had even a half a day of this, you know. So somehow the ones who are really practicing, these young guys, whatever, they truly are learning not to blame, truly learning to find these outrageous situations where they can find some kind of clarity and contentment and sanity in their own minds, you know. So it seems to me that's really the purpose of why we're Buddhists. I mean, why would we want to be a Buddhist? Why do we want to look at our minds? What's the purpose, you know? It's to try and find what's in there, not out there, in here, that's kind of making us crazy, not out there. And now, of course, we can see we spend our lives pointing out there. It's so easy because everything out there is more vivid to us. Especially in our culture, isn't it? Where we don't, learn, we don't learn to look at our minds. I mean, my mother was a good Catholic and, I mean, a really good human being. She taught me how to play music, how to sing, how to, how to walk, how to talk, how to write. But she didn't know how to teach me how to be less angry, less, you know, less jealous, more loving. She didn't know. We don't, we don't have methods. There's no such concept of a method how to get less angry, you know. There are methods how to play piano. So what I can see with Buddhism is if we really use it well, it's practical methods of how to become a sane, content human being. I mean, forget even about long-term future Buddha nature and all the rest, you know. And that's the thing that I'm seeing with these guys, and that's what's helped me really just focus very clearly on the purpose. Why am I a Buddhist? You know, why am I trying to transform my mind? So the heart one is this one of karma. For me, it's, it rings loud and clear, you know. I mean, it's fine if we watch our breath every day, and it's fine if we learn to be kind and patient with people. That's all part of the deal. But it's almost as if they're very central. It's almost as like, you know, if you're playing basketball, the main point isn't all the training and all the special diets you go on and all the hours and hours of work and all the years of this and that and all the, all the other things that you do on the court. The very heart of being a basketball player is getting the ball in the hoop, isn't it? This is the point. Everything leads to this. Well, in Buddhism, the point of, it seems to me, the ball, getting the ball in the hoop in Buddhism is training, tra- changing the mind. Changing our mind. From what, though? To what? First, you only want to ch- you know, the only reason to change something is because it needs it. So what is it that, about our mind that needs changing? Well, you know, one approach to it, one way of saying what Buddha says is that everything is to do with how we see it. Everything to do with, is with conception. Everything is to do with the way we interpret reality. It sort of sounds like a fairly, you know, kind of like a cliche, but the more I think we understand the teachings, the more we practice, the more we really do see that truly, as a, you know, our own mind makes things up. It sounds like a cliche, but the more we look, I think we discover that truly is so. It is how you interpret, you know, how you interpret reality, how you interpret your situation. As Lama Zoparimache, uh, one of my teachers, said to this, this young guy, Achura, who's now 24 and he's been, well, he's been, on, he's been in prison since he was 12, basically, like an awful lot of these guys, you know. Since he's 12, maybe one and a half years on the street altogether. And he's now in Pelican Bay Prison, which is where quite a lot of the people I write to and visit live, which is up in North Car- Northern California. And they, it's a strict, the, top, the top security prison in this state where all the troublemakers from the other prisons go, you know, go. They built it maybe 10 years ago for this reason. And these, half these guys, 2,000 of them, are in their cells 23 hours a day on complete lockdown. And that's where they'll, many of them will be for the rest of their life. You know. They have one hour exercise in another cell. They don't actually go outside. 
So anyway, he's, he's, this is the first guy that wrote to me, and he's, do, he's really an intensive practitioner. And as Lama Zopa said to him, which can sound almost arrogant if we, if, if we say this too easily, you know, but he said it with absolute comprehension, and Arturo somehow sees that, and many of these guys see that. He said, your prison is nothing in comparison with the prison of ordinary people. And he means us, you know. The prison of attachment, the prison of anger, the prison of pride, the prison of jealousy. I mean, that's the real prison. But it's when we are in our ordinary environment where we have so-called freedom to do what we want, when we want, how we want, which is what you think about is what freedom is and what these guys don't have. You know, you can't even get a cup of tea when you want it. You can do nothing, you know. You have this 8 by 10 cell. And you, whatever it is that you can do in there, 23 hours a day, with 10 books and a television, this is all they're allowed to have. One pen, the inside of a pen actually, just the soft part, you know. And that's about it. So somehow what you can do with this, in terms of, you look at how we lead our lives, we were I mean, deprived of the various activities that we call our life. I mean, that's what we call insanity, isn't it? That, that kind of deprivation. Well, that's what many of these guys have. And so, indeed, insanity is, is the option for many of them. Truly going insane every day or killing each other, you know. Or, like Arturo, finding something. Finding, forcing, being forced because of circumstances to find you know, his, the reality inside himself, to find the depths of his own mind, to find the huge universe inside there, all these nice things we know and hear about, but which we don't, when we're not forced to, this is the point, isn't it? we can see in our lives, when we're not forced to, we often don't want to, you know. It's the, it's the easy option, the comfort, the kind of it's very strong for us, I think, and this is really, I'd say, seems to me the real meaning of following attachment, which is so deep and pervasive in us, you know, so subtle. Way more than just, oh, I like that, you know, that's not attachment. It's a very pervasive energy. And it's the one of, of, of deeply, you know, kind of continually trying to uphold our comfort zone. The second there's any dissatisfaction, what do we do? We find something to alleviate it, don't we? And because we have the freedom, even though we might be the richest, most famous people on earth, we have enormous freedom to do what we want, how we want, when we want, to get a sound, a certain sound when we feel like it, a certain taste, a certain smell, a certain touch. We are able to satisfy our senses really easily. So we mightn't be maniacs with that. And we can say that we are practitioners still, but it's still within that, you know. It's still within sustaining this comfort zone. Whereas in an environment like this, there is nothing you can do except go inside or go crazy, you know. And so this is what I truly admire, that these people have gone deeply, deeply, so they focus much more, concentrate much more, go far more deeply, question more deeply, really learn, because you have no choice, to give up attachment. Meaning, you can't follow what you want, when you want it. You are forced to wait until they bring you your breakfast, albeit disgusting, you know. You, are, you can only have ten books at any one time. You cannot ever have a pencil. You can't ever have most things we would take for granted in our life. Now they're trying to say I'm feeling sorry. It's not a question of feeling sorry for these people. What I'm trying to say is it's how powerful it is to think about that and then to see what these guys can do with their mind in that, you know. So in his prison... When, he, when you use that well, and this is the one of how you view it, if you view that as a good situation, you've got to be very courageous to do that. And these, some of these guys actually do view it as, as fortunate. You know, I mean, I get many of them. One guy, because he, he, he took a cigarette, he was given a cigarette by one of the workers and he wouldn't snitch on them. So, I mean, it's like, you know, it's like worse than boarding school. You get 90 days in solitary for not snitching on somebody. So this guy, he actually, in a simple, humble, ordinary bloke, you know, who'd never in his life really investigated his own mind, you know, 
ordinary guy, not so intelligent, but because he's been forced to, he's finding whatever there is inside, you know. And he said, Rabina, I was so happy. He had 90 days in solitary. He's able to do his prostrations and do a retreat and do, do his practice really intensively, you know. I mean, it sounds easy to say these things, but this is coming from their own mouths. Many of them who go for parole but don't get it and have three more years, they're very able to quickly turn it around and say, okay, I'm really, actually I'm relieved, I'm really grateful, you know. I mean, one guy who's, again, this ordinary Mexican, I mean, triple murderer, covered in tattoos, classic kind of gangster, 36, 38, mostly they're dead by then, but he's still alive, and he's, with no question ever, he will get out of prison. But even according to his level, he really can see what he's aiming for, is to get back into a cell on his own where he can be 23 hours a day, undisturbed by all the insanity of being on the main line, as they call it, where he's likely to get stabbed. He's on about four different hit lists. So for him, it would be a blessing to be in a cell on his own all day where he can have peace of mind. You know? that's, that's the top aim of his life. So it's kind of interesting, just this whole other perspective on life, you know. And this is where you can see the people like this, if they truly are really putting their money where their mouth is and truly being Buddhist, I mean really investigating their mind, really transforming their mind, really taking responsibility for their environment, and really stopping blaming, stopping pointing fingers at the outside, then that's, that's where sanity comes from. That's where bliss comes from. You know? That's where contentment comes from. But sometimes we need to be, you know, needs to be shoved in our face enough, doesn't it, the suffering, in order to really turn ourselves around. As another one of my friends who's in Folsom said, it was his, finally, it was his wake-up call, you know, which is wake-up call. It's like someone being told they're going to die, you know, got cancer, AIDS or something. It's then we start to wake up. We should be getting ourselves to wake up before the doctor tells us, before we get sent to prison, before we get a wake-up call from outside. That's the skill. And that's certainly what I can see in the way that they practice in Tibet. And, you know, it's the only experience I have among these Tibetan, Tibetans. You know, it's my tradition. These very fierce practitioners, I mean really fierce, who truly... You know, for example, there's one old lama we interviewed for our magazine, this Mandela, in the next issue. Just the way he just fiercely would do anything. This is at the time of being arrested, all the 50s and stuff in uh, Tibet, you know. He, anything, at all costs, so he could find a way to practice. And so he spent, you know, 19 years on a bed in a house, pretending to be an invalid, even having to bring in the chamber pot so he can, you know, never walking outside this door for 19 years, choosing to do this because it was the only way he could practice Dharma, you know, looking like an invalid with his hair and his beard down to here, for 19 years not getting off that bed. I mean, it's inconceivable to even imagine this kind of determination, you know, this kind of absolute will, this determination to use the worst situation in order to find what's in here. And that's what being a Buddhist is, you know. It's not, it's not an external thing. Being a Buddhist is finding our amazing qualities, you know. I mean, Buddha talks very... I mean, I think it's so important in our culture we start from the very first point of Buddha's... his assumption upon which everything is based, which is that we possess so-called Buddha nature. What does this mean in real terms, you know? And I think, again, this is something that I think we all tend to hear this stuff in a nice religious way. And we have all these religious rituals, which are sort of very Asian. And that's just the cultural part. But we often, you know, not, don't, really don't really penetrate deep below the surface, which is what we need to do. Because it seems to me evident that what Buddhism is talking about isn't just sort of religious things that you believe in, but actual practical things that are, that are to do with truth, reality, me, you, you know. So Buddha nature means that our mind, our consciousness... You know, our thoughts, feelings, emotions, who we really are, in other words, and not our, which is not our body, not our, not our fingers, not our eyelashes. We're not our body, you know. That's just, an, that's just a fairly secondary way we identify ourselves, male, female, this, that. They're not the real person that we are, you know. The real thing that we are is our mind, 
And that mind or that consciousness, you know, as Buddha teaches, doesn't come from God or Buddha, isn't created by somebody, is not physical, doesn't come from mother, father. This is ours, you know, and we bring the energy with us. It's a beginningless continuity of, of mental moments. And so the potential, the natural potential, what this mind actually is, is Buddha, meaning it's pure. It's not fundamentally polluted. You know? So a good analogy for me is like water. As long as there's that liquid there, isn't there? No matter how disgusting it is, no matter how polluted it is, we all know, even without being scientists, that its nature is water, H2O, if you like. You know? and if you have the skill to remove the pollution, then you find, you, 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 know, you, you show, bring up, make evident the true nature of that liquid. And no matter how much pollution is there, it never fundamentally destroys the true nature of water. As long as that liquid exists, it is its nature. In, in its nature, it is pure water. Well, that's a good analogy for who we are, you know, our mind. Now, this is Buddha's first starting point. Our true nature is Buddha. Our true nature, meaning, is pure. So the implication of this is we can change. Yes, we are polluted now, and that's the the, the, the attachment, the you know, the, the pride, the jealousy, the confusion, all the garbage that's in every single human being, every living being. That's our pollution. So that's the stuff we need to remove in order to uncover, make manifest our true nature. So I think having this as a starting point is sort of first step, but it's also incredibly profound, you know, and it can give us enormous. Um, sustenance, enormous perseverance to go through the garbage of life, the garbage that life does definitely bring us, there's no question, and give us the courage to never give up, you know, which is again one of these things that I get from these guys in prison, an incredible determination, incredible perseverance through difficulties, you know. Difficulties that even if we got five of, you know, five percent of it, in my experience, the level of violence is just inconceivable, you know, the level of just, at so many levels, just simply the noise, something that I never thought of until I got it from every angle from these guys, you know. Even where Arturo is in these special little pods, they call them pods, there are sections of eight cells, two guys to a cell, maybe sometimes one. He said the noise, it's like being in a rock concert all day, every day, maybe three hour break during the night, you know. Being in a rock concert, and there's just 16 people. Not to mention, you know, some of them where there's kind of areas where there are 800 people. Noise like we can't even conceive of all the time all the time. I mean, even just this alone is like a nightmare you know, to even conceive of this. And having no way, and that's the point, what they get so strongly is you cannot change it. You cannot open that door. So that's to me a very incredible level of renunciation, actually, if you think about it. Meaning, because, you know, meaning truly accepting this is my reality. Whereas you check with us, with all of us, this is our nature, attachment, the energy of attachment is to constantly trying to get what we want, to manipulate the external circumstances to make them just so, so that we can be happy. And if you think about it, that's really what we mean by happiness in this life. You know? Manipulating the external world to make it just so, so then I feel now I can be content. So to go beyond that, to truly let go of having to do this, this is sublime. I mean, this is truly renunciation. This is really level, a certain level of practice that maybe none of us would ever get to in this life where we have the freedom to do and say and think exactly what we want when we want it. This is like really practice. And really, that's where we find our sanity. That's where we find the person we really are. That's where we find our bliss and joy and kindness and therefore love and compassion and forgiveness of others, you know. And what I'm again seeing with these guys, some of them for four years, five years writing, you know, and you know from what they tell you that they've been truly abused. I mean, where Arturo is, because they, it doesn't matter the story, but basically they're putting him in this cell because they're, whatever, it doesn't matter, there's kind of a lot of politics over the Mex Mexican mafia, for example, you know. 
and completely unjust the things that happen sometimes. But they absolutely, some of them, you don't get a single word of blame or self-pity out of their mouths. And that's something quite profound, you know. And that's the thing that I'm really getting. John, just from this whole idea of understanding what ego means, you know, what ego means. I mean, we sort of, when we say ego, we tend to think of this big, strong, powerful thing that kind of asserts itself. But actually, the way Lama Yeshi, who's my main teacher, uh, as he said, you know, he, he used these kind of, he, he said, ego is kind of like self-pity me, kind of this little colloquial sound, statement, you know. Well, you check the meaning of this. And the more you look in behind, behind when anger arises, when attachment arises, when pride, hurt, jealousy, you name any of these motions that we all have, which are the pollution that causes so much suffering and then causes to harm others. You check behind that. It is, it's poor me, isn't it? That's ego, you know. Ego isn't, I mean, it could be, I am so special, but it's kind of, it's, it's got a taste. You think, you've got a very proud person. It's kind of a taste of a little kid there, isn't it? You just prick them and they deflate. It's not a really strong person. A strong person is a humble person. A very proud person is actually very fragile, kind of like flaunting, you know. But they're almost like you have to say the slightest thing and they're in tears. So it's self-pity me, you know. Poor me. And you check the main way that we suffer. Especially in this culture where it's a huge kind of victim mentality, which is the one of ego. It's poor me. Why me? How dare they do that to me? If we feel this, then that's, that's the energy of ego. That's the irony of ego, you know. It's this miniature, small, confined, limited, unhappy, frantic sense of little baby me. And the more, ironically, the more that is there, the more small, the more fierce we are in our anger, pride, whatever we call it, you know, this little eye lashing out frantically. That's what insanity is. That's what samsara means, you know. That's what ego is. This little schizophrenic, you know, we talk about how we see things dualistically. Well, again, Lama Yeshi, very direct. We're schizophrenic, you see. The schizophrenic view of reality we have. This poor little baby me here and this big world out there. Either all the delicious, gorgeous, lovely things that we have to kind of absorb into us to make us real, which is what attachment looks at, or the horrible, mean, ugly, nasty things out there that kind of confront us and hurt us, which are the aversion objects, which we have to push away because they offend this little baby me, you know. So somehow really getting the feeling of the energy of this behind and going beyond the self-pity me is something incredible. Something incredible. Some sanity. That is what sanity begins with, you know. It's like learning to... And it's interesting, you know, when they talk about, isn't it, ego, the fundamental root of samsara, the, the, the root delusion of samsara, the root delusion that is the source of why we're even reborn in the first place and why we have any suffering whatsoever and why we therefore harm any others, is called ignorance. But ignorance specifically, they kind of, you know, often in the Tibetans anyway, they... Little kind of um, colloquial again. This ego grasping, this fear. It, it's its manifestation is this kind of grasping at this sense of I. In the West, we call it actually instinct for survival. It's interesting. It only arises. We think of it in terms of animals when they're threatened or when we are threatened. We think of it as this, but actually that's really the symptom of this fearful sense of I rising. You know, and this is the symptom of this ignorance. Ignorance of the true nature of our things actually exists, you know, which is not separately, you know, in, you know, in the schizophrenic, lonely sense of lo- lonely, alienated, cut off, bereft me here and this big fat world out there, which is how we all experience life. That's the symptom of this ego grasping. That's the symptom of this um, I, you know, this ego. 
which is the source, the root. And its nature is fear. I mean, look at what we call instinct for survival when someone threatens you. What rises like a sleeping lion, isn't it? This is poor me. How dare they do this to me? Freak out. I mean, complete panic. That's I, you know. That's, that's the symptom. That's the, that's the sign of this ignorance, the presence of this ignorance, this clinging to this fabricated sense of an independent, solid, real me. I mean, we all know these words, you know, but it's the experiencing of them that is the realisation. And it's the elimination, not of the eye, as the Dalai Lama says, it's not as if you find the eye and then chuck it out. No, because the eye, the eye that we think exists doesn't exist. This is ancient kind of projection that we've had for eons that is a hallucination that our mind has made up, as Lama Zopa says. So it's not as if you chuck it out. When you realise emptiness, they say, when you realise the, the lack of this particular way we grasp an eye, you realise the lack of that, that's all. You find that lack. You don't find an eye and throw it out. You find the absence of the eye. That's what emptiness means. It refers to the absence and why they say it's such a profound experience is because it's, the, it's finally the recognition. It's the finding. It's the finding of the lack of what you thought was there all the time. This is the very root, isn't it? But then, of course, on top of this, you know, the main, if you like, say that ignorance is the root of samsara, this sense of I, which is, the, which is what even causes us, propels us from one life into the next, is the way they talk about how when you die, you know, especially in the Tibetan tradition too, there are very detailed descriptions of the death process. And, and of course, in these very esoteric practices, you know, in Buddhist Tantra, there are these ways, very sophisticated methods of actually harnessing the energy of the subtle and physiology of the body and the mind, you know, in order to literally harness the energy and literally go through death without losing control, in order to therefore choose rebirth. That's how they talk. But what they say, roughly speaking, happens at the time of death is the gradual throwing off of this gross sense of me, you know, Rubina, the sense of who she is, this Australian female, this, that, all the stuff, all the package that we have and identify with, you know. That's ceasing, ceasing, ceasing. And then by the time we stop breathing, even by then Buddhism, you know, the way we say in this process, already then which is when you're ready for the body bag in this culture, but you're not dead yet, according to the Buddhist tradition. You've got even two more days before the subtler consciousness is able to leave the body. But even before then, they say the karmic imprint that will cause the future life is beginning to ripen, to harness. And so there's this powerful grasping energy, they say, manifests at that time that's really like a kind of a huge motor that just propels us into this intermediate state that they talk about between lives and frantically, like frantically looking for another basis, for another eye. This is the ego grasping. And as long as that is there, this ignorance, this kind of propulsion, whatever the word is, you know, to continue to get reborn. And then once we're in the life, it's what drives us to do what we do, you know, in the neurotic ways especially. And we can, we can use it skillfully for the good stuff until we get rid of it, nothing wrong. But it, it's what drives us. And then its main energy, because this is, the irony, again, the irony of this ego, this, this pushing, this energy, this grasping, this sense of me, so primordial. The irony is because it's separate and cut off, dualistic, whatever you want to call, lonely, bereft, me, here, kind of, then, of course, it's because its nature is to feel lacking, then naturally its main voice, isn't it, is I want. This is why attachment, so-called, is our main delusion. You know? Attachment is the main cause of our suffering, effectively in this life. The fundamental cause of suffering is ignorance, is ego grasping. But then the I want, the attachment energy, 
And like, again, it too is so primordial. It's not a question of, oh, I'm attached to chocolate cake, I'm attached to this or that. You know, that's kind of a gross level of it. It's something truly that is, like, again, moving us from second to second. And its voice is dissatisfaction. Its voice is feeling a lack, a deep sense of dissatisfaction, a deep, deep, I mean deep sense of something missing, always needing something more. And, when, and then because it's kind of so crazy and because it's such a liar, it projects onto all the outside objects, absolutely believing that handsome body and that gorgeous cake and that delicious sound and that whatever looks delicious and will give me the happiness that I am craving. So when we shove it in to any one of the five senses and then wonder why five minutes, five days, five years later we're feeling bereft again. You know, this is the energy of attachment. So even this one, or to begin to lessen this one, not to mention the ego grasping, is already sublime, you know. And then what's anger? Well, as one lama said, anger or aversion is the response when attachment is thwarted, when attachment doesn't get what it wants. I mean, look at this world. I mean, just look at this culture. Look at this country alone, you know. The thwarting of needs is quite obvious. The raging, the smashing, the, 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 the beating out there, the blaming is unbelievable. And that's anger energy. That's because attachment is thwarted. Attachment doesn't get what it wants. Then you can see all the others, jealousy, pride, all these are all kind of coming from this one of attachment, which comes in turn from the one of this positing of this I. You know. This is samsara. This is suffering. Well, I didn't... Oh, you only had a good half an hour. Maybe some questions. You said I should have time for questions. The power house. I feel like I've heard a message right from the front line. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so touched. We do have one of our sound members in prison. Oh, you do? Fantastic. That's so good. Yeah. Absolutely powerful. Good. Mm-hmm. Right from the front lines and from the heart. Well, that's it. You know, that's the one. I would. I'm sure plenty of us will have questions. Please, if you have any questions, anything. I mean, I'm happy to talk. What kind of collaboration do you get from the wardens and the prisoners? I understand. Yeah. Well, in general, they're all fundamentalists. You know, very suspicious. In general, their nature. I'm not trying to be critical now. It's just the nature, that type of environment you can see, is to not be supportive. It's rare to find support, and it's like a jewel when I find support. I mean, it's the law. So you know, as this the, the, the fundamentalist chaplain where I go in Kentucky, where I see guys on death row. As he said that um, it's the law, and he, he, he almost says, I don't, you know, I don't want to have you in here. And his look of horror on his face when we talk about something, he kind of looks, stands at the door listening. It truly offends him, and I don't know, I feel sorry for him, you know. But he knows he has to allow it. But he sort of, they, they, yeah, unless you're very determined and always polite. I can never be kind of aggressive, you know. Then, but it takes sometimes years to actually get them to set it up. And, but some, some are kind, some are very supportive, and it's rare to find someone like that who truly doesn't care whether you doesn't matter. They just know if you're trying to help people, then they support you. But if you want me to talk more about karma or something, or about the mind, what are you, should I talk more about one particular topic, perhaps? Or you have any questions in general? Yeah. Well, I almost have a comment. Yeah. That was the most powerful Dharma talk I've heard. Absolutely. Yeah. It was. I, I had to echo how hard. Boy, that just you just cut right to the right chase. Very, very powerful. I want to thank you. No bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. Let's. I know. That's my one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the thing is, as Howard, Howard, excuse me, as Howard mentioned, we do have a song about it. Who is in prison right now? Good. What's he doing? What does he do? What does he do in prison? Goes into visit, visits him. 
visits people in yeah, yeah, people, I, I, people do visit him uh, yes. in, in this community and outside of this community. Yes. Uh, it's one of those things where you have to wait about five hours for a half hour. Exactly. I know. Exactly. And, and you know, my, my experience has been pretty much echoes uh, just to, so I get letters from Howard. And, That's and, right. I mean, there seems to be a conscious effort to break the prisoner spirit. Mm-hmm. I mean, just just pointless ways to degrade and humiliate the, the, the prisoner just take place. And, and um, I, I guess the question, I don't know, do you have like, a, like is this like a newsletter you, you send out to prisoners? No, I think Matter is the magazine of the organization of this Tibetan Buddhist group of centers around the world. I don't know if you guys have seen it. Maybe I should send you some copies. I'll send you some copies. Uh, uh, We put it out six times a year. It's a magazine, like 80 pages, you know, from a magazine. Does it specifically address? No, no. The point is I'm the editor of that magazine, and it happens to be because I'm the editor of that magazine and it's part of this FPMT, and Wisdom Publications is also our publishing company. So in the back of Wisdom Books it says, write to Mandela for a free copy. So that's how come guys in prison write, and that's how come these letters got sent to me. And this. then I just picked it up and felt I, had, I couldn't say no to this, and so now it's developed into this big project, you know. So Mandela is just the magazine we put out, which is the FPMT, but out of this has grown the prison thing. Do you, do you have anything in writing about what you've just been talking about, about the experiences with prisoners and, and practice? Yeah, I would love to be there. No, I understand. No, I understand. Let me think. I mean, mainly, yeah. The magazine, we, we did one issue. In 1997, I got Arturo to write his life story, which is very inspiring, you know, and then a few other guys right. to write. I could send you a copy of that magazine. Will you do that? Sure thing. And I'll, I'll send it on the hour. Oh, no, sure. Be, Absolutely. Yeah, that sure. would be very No, happy to do. Happy yeah, to do. Happy and I have this, I mean, I'm keeping all these letters. We've got hundreds of letters for the last four or four years now. At some point, I know there's a book there, you know, so I want to put that out. It's just, it's just incredibly inspiring. The most ordinary experience of these most ordinary guys, it brings tears to many people's eyes. Just the, 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 the humility. They all learn, they all say they learn humility and patience. And you feel it, you know. You really do feel it. One of the things, the commonest things they all say is you learn humility and patience in prison. Humility and patience. Patience, right. Right. And perseverance. They all kind of have this thing of never giving up, you know, persevering, persevering. No, I'll find what I can find for you. Sure. We, in this country, we're just in such a denial about the sheer yeah, I know. horror. Yeah, The level of it, I know, I know. And as you just hear these comments, you go, ah, I'm thrown away. Oh, I know, I'm that's right. The key. Yeah, I know, exactly. Uh, just what, what you see on uh, public broadcasting, for example, some of the prison things, but I suppose it's the thing. It's the collective. It's the collective. Um, it's the collection. It's the collective. I think it seems to me it's the expression of the of the predominant. I mean, it's such a political thing. And I think if, if, if the majority of people in this state didn't want it, there wouldn't be prisons in this way. So it's really it's expression of the collective energy. You know, I mean. It costs something like forty thousand a year. Yeah. Even in juvenile hall, I've heard, cost twenty, thirty thousand a year just to keep them incarcerated. Yeah. You know? it's the interesting. only sign of hope I've seen yeah. are comments like it's getting too expensive. We can't afford it anymore. Well, that'll be the bottom line eventually when they have to change for this reason. Yeah, might force other things. Yeah. So, anyway, what else can we talk about in the time we've got? Well, that's what I'm saying. We've only ever had one letter from one woman, which is kind of curious. I don't know why. I only respond to people who write, you know, and then send books to them and go visit. What else? Yes. I just have a comment. Yes. Uh, we don't. I don't hear much about uh, karma. Yeah. 
And uh, you just said, are you guys mostly Zen, or is you're a mixture? Mixture. Oh, I see. Okay. But uh, I would say, let me say, in American Buddhism, yes. I don't hear a whole lot. In my limited, very limited mm-hmm. exposure, most of mm-hmm. it's in about uh, Karma. Sure. And, uh, uh, I don't care to, no. <laughs> uh, but I'm just saying, from what my reflections on what you said yeah. is that uh, I just, I'm involved somewhat with um, uh, victims of sexual abuse. Okay, yes. So one of the psychological model, models is even your child. Yes. You know, and you actually use that uh, as a way, as a, as a victim model. Yeah, I understand. And, um, I, I, I don't have anything to say one other except the extreme difficulty mm-hmm. of even a victim of sexual abuse of accepting the karma. I believe it is. No, no, I it's mean, no doubt. Because yes. the, the, the work seems to be in working somehow with the psychological relationship you have with the perpetrator. Right, right. Uh, but not in a karmic way. No, of course that not. That no matter what my relationship yeah. is with that perpetrator, yeah. that was my karma. Yes. So and that's that, the, it that is, hasn't been introduced no. really into modern. I think no, no. I really think it's such a. It's a, it's just interesting. It's such a. I mean, this okay. Different two different things. First of all, this one of karma. You know, because we're all sitting here and we've all chosen to be Buddhists, we're not here completely. I mean, maybe some of us are having mental breakdowns, but we're still managing to deal with our mental breakdowns. We're not completely. You understand? We're not the total victim in the classic sense of being abused, without any understanding of how to deal with it, which is the worst suffering on this earth, isn't it? Which is. Your, the examples of people you're talking about. So there seems to me, you know, first of all, here I am, you know, I can say more about karma, the classic Buddhist teaching, because that's the, the Tibetan tradition very strongly in these monasteries, 20, 30 years of intensive study of all the Buddhist stuff in order to incorporate that into your meditation, in order to eventually internalize it and realize it and go beyond being victim, I mean, in the most profound way, okay? So, but as to then, no, a good, sorry, saying a few things here. There's this nice analogy they use in Mahayana that a bird needs two wings. Now, one wing is all the wisdom, they call the wisdom wing, and one is compassion. And all the wisdom work, if you like, is all the work that you do to achieve your own nirvana, which is all the work of, of dealing with your mind, understanding karma, letting go of garbage, understanding attachment, developing renunciation, realizing emptiness. All of this is the wisdom wing. And then the other one is everything you do in relation to others to benefit them, basically on the basis of success in this one. So in terms of, here I am mostly talking the wisdom wing, just touching on little points of the mind and our own suffering, that's where you're emphasizing self, getting understanding this one. But when it comes to benefiting another person, let's say, depending on what that person is in front, it might have nothing to do with karma, with anything. It might be just, I mean, one of the things about helping a victim is knowing what it is that they need to hear that helps their mind work with what they've got. So it seems to be you need to be a very developed person. Or as one, one lama said, you have to be a suitable vessel to hear these kinds of teachings of karma, taking responsibility, letting go, stopping blaming, that's a pretty powerful level. And it already implies some sense of a reasonable self. But when you're a true victim in the classic sense of being sexually abused like a kid, you know, as a kid, you have no basis. There's been nothing developed in the first place. So everything that is there has been stomped on. Okay, the bigger picture is, you know, intellectually due to past karma, but it's not going to be helpful for that person to hear that. The job to help is that to help that person get some sense that they're not to blame, that it doesn't reflect upon them, that you are a marvelous human being, that it isn't you that is at fault. And then when a person begins to have this sense of themselves, if they ever like the views of Buddhism, then they can start to hear the view of karma. Do you see what I'm saying? 
That's where I can see, say, myself being a Buddhist, studying this stuff, ascribing to it myself, trying to use it myself. When I have all the different people coming to me, whether they are guys in prison or whatever, and there are different kinds. I'm talking now about the ones who really have a very powerful practice, you know, who can hear this stuff full on and use it. But sometimes you have to say, the, you know, you are a good person. That's the main teaching. You are a wonderful human being. Talk about, you know, using this, the Buddhist term for Buddha nature, meaning you are fundamentally marvellous, not you are fundamentally garbage, which is what we tend to think, which is the irony is that that's ego, but you can't say that. It sounds too heavy. Do you see what I'm saying? But, I mean, the one of karma is, I mean, if you really go into that, it's just because, you know, Buddhism on the one side says there is no creator. So what's the implication of that? Is it, what is the cause of the universe? Well, it's karma. And what is karma? Karma means action. Action means whatever a sentient being, ants, dogs, humans, you name it, whatever a sentient being does with their body, their speech and their mind, that leaves an imprint in that consciousness. And literally you can say, if you want to find creator, if you really follow this stuff through, there being no outside creator, it just can't come from its own side out of nowhere. It can't just be potluck. It can't be random. So, you know, this is what the detailed teachings on karma actually explain how literally we are the creators of our own reality. So that scorpion, for example, according to the teachings on karma, a scorpion, it has consciousness. Fundamental, beginningless consciousness, just like Rabina and you, you know. It's But due to past karma that ripened at the time of its past death, its little consciousness zapped, you know, was attracted to mummy scorpion due to negative energy. It now is manifesting as a scorpion. Literally, it's got a scorpion mind and a scorpion body. So it is literally the creator of its own past. The person who gets raped and murdered and abused, the person who's in prison unfairly, whatever you name it, you know. We are, it is, it, so the, the, one of the fundamental laws of karma is that if you are experiencing it, whatever it is, it has to have come from what you did. Otherwise, you wouldn't be experiencing it. I mean, this already is so profound for us even to accept in our daily life that person being mean to us in the shop was due to our past karma. I mean, instinctively, it's who do they think they are, how dare they, you know, the, the tiniest thing. So to actually have this view and be like one of these old Tibetan lamas, you know, common experiences. I mean, I've got many stories of these just guys who are just, I mean, classic examples of people who are truly practicing this path. One of, one of these old guys, you know, 35 years being tortured. 35 years, his body's a wreck, you know, but he's just this blissful, beaming person. And he's, apart from many other things, explaining about his experience in the prisons and being tortured. As he said, he was able to use that experience, that suffering, to tra and transform it into pure joy. I mean, what's this mean? It's kind of like, excuse me. Where does that come from? That needs a book of commentary, you know. But you can kind of get the feeling that a person who truly has the view of karma in their mind, not just intellectually, but experientially, experiencing. There's really, and this is interesting too, the more you understand karma, which is actually dependent arising, interdependence, the more you understand emptiness. This is a very interesting thing actually. The more we understand that everything is due to our past actions, everything is interdependent, the more it leads us to emptiness. You know. It's a very interesting approach actually. Understanding that this consciousness, again, what is mind? You know, in Buddhist terms, mind is, is non-physical energy. Can't see it, touch it, smell it. Doesn't come from God or Buddha. It's not created by anybody. Doesn't come from parents. Body comes from parents. No problems. Thank you, mother, father. Egg and sperm produced. You know, so the Buddhist view, and again in these detailed explanations they give in Tibetan Buddhism, the time the egg and sperm came together, what caused them to stay together, you know, we're talking old-fashioned ways of having babies now. Lord knows how the Buddhist texts describe the new ways of having babies. But, you know, when egg and sperm come together, in Buddhist terms, what causes them to stay together and not go down the toilet along with the rest, you know, is the entry of consciousness. 
the, the subtle level, a very subtle level of the continuity, let's say, of Rabina's consciousness, due to many, many, many karmic causes and conditions, came together and was attracted to that particular egg and sperm. That particular egg and sperm, you know. Now, I'll even tell you, it's most, curious, it's most extraordinary how they describe. This is again in the, in, the, in the text, the Indian, the Mahayana text, that, again, that are studied in Tibetan Buddhism. If even what they, how they even describe uh, a rebirth. And, for, and this is my speculation, but this sounds to me like it's, the, it's, it's um, a heterosexual rebirth. It's very curious, it's actually. You, you hear, hear how they say it. There's this lovely book, very small, that describes the entire death process, and it's a commentary by one Tibetan lama, and the Dalai Lama's written um, a forward to it. It's called Death, Intermediate State and Rebirth. Very small, but a very tasty little book. Anyway, the, the process, as Dalai Lama describes in the forward, is that, you know, at the time of death, Rabina's, let's say Fred, she was actually was Fred last, last life, okay? And then due to very strong virtue ripening, karmic, strong virtuous karma ripening at the time of Fred's death, because virtuous karma is the cause of why we have a human life and not a scorpion life, right? That the ty- very strong virtue ripened. That was based, by the time you stop breathing, that karma's already ripened. It's like a seed that has come to the surface. But already, there's no volition. The mind is now on autopilot, okay? So the mind goes into this intermediate state, like a dream state, which is just like a dream. Absolutely like a dream, but very intense. But the, the energy that's forcing it is the past karma, the force of karma, as they say, this powerful force of karma that's, that's causing this consciousness to sort of frantically look around for a new rebirth. And then when the karma comes together for my, you know, for my mother and father, there they were in sexual, sexual union. And then so my, suddenly in the bardo, because you, you're not a gross being, you're a sort of subtler being, you, you have the clairvoyant vision, you have a vision of them in, in sexual union. And they say, this is why I'm saying now, it sounds to me, I'm speculating, I haven't heard commentary from a lama, but it seems obvious, it's the cause of being a heterosexual, that you are fiercely attracted sexually, to, I would have been, because I'm, I'm a girl, like I got born a girl, I would have been fiercely attracted sexually to my father. So I would have rushed towards my father to have sex with him, and then got completely furious, because you're just this little tiny nothing consciousness. So they told in the text, it's very interesting. And then that anger, because you're furious because you can't, causes you to die from the bardo and zap into the egg and sperm. That's the beginning of life. I mean, wow. We're in for trouble already, aren't we? I mean, <laughs> attachment and aversion are even the source of even... This is how they describe in the text, in the esoteric text in Buddhism, you know. It's most fascinating. So it seems to me it has to be the other way around if you be, end up being a gay boy, you know. I, I haven't asked them. I keep meaning to check up, you know, what, what they say. But it does seem logical. But isn't this interesting? Attachment and aversion even call you to get into that womb in the first place, this fierce energy of, um, of, of delusion, you know. And then off you go again, new life. So first of all, it's one major karmic cause that is the cause of how come your mind is on autopilot and gets into the scorpion egg or the human egg, right? That's due to karma. And then every single thing that happens to you in this life is also due to karma. In fact, they talk about, we have a practice we call, it's a purification practice. We, you know, any Tibetan Buddhist, they're doing a reasonable job of their practice, they would do it every night. And it's really just four psychological steps you go through. It's an infrastructure called the four opponent powers. It's just really a way of contemplating. And then you do a practice, I'll explain it. And each of these four is linked to the four ways that karma ripens, which is really a way of describing how the universe comes into being, you know. So one way, the major way, how do they describe it? is the karma that ripens, the karmic seed that ripens at the time you die. That's the one, they call it even the throwing karma, that throws you from being, you know, into this rebirth, into the next rebirth. This kind of powerful, very powerful transition of that consciousness from one type of body to another type of body. Okay? And so that karmic imprint is the throwing karma, and that's a very powerful one. So to be a human, like I said, we must have created a huge amount of virtue in a past life. 
to have for our consciousness to have gone into our present mother's womb. No matter how much garbage this life has been, the fact that we're not in a scorpion's body at this moment indicates the fruiting, if you like, of enormous virtuous karma, incredibly virtuous. I mean, they would say if we really realised how hard we must have practised in a past life, we would just cry at the thought of wasting a second of this life, how precious it is, you know, how hard we must have worked. So that's the, the cause of this actual life, being born as a human. But then you check from the second we're born, second we're conceived even, we have experiences. And then it's, yeah, So there are other, three other ways karma ripens. Most interesting, and this covers the entire world, it covers our life, you think about it. The, one, the other one is called, the second one is called, the, the, the karma ripens as the action similar to the cause. So you, in other words, you check your, your mind, your personality, your characteristics, your habits, your good ones, your bad ones, the old habit to lie, the old habit to kill, the old habit to be generous, whatever it is in our mind that we call our personality. The personality that we are and the habits we have, you think about it, is nothing other than the habits we have accumulated that have now ripened into this package. You know, a few of the karmic seeds have ripened into this package called Rabina. Her habit to be angry, her habit to lie, her habit to be generous, whatever it is, her propensities, the things she likes, she doesn't like, all of this, they're all the action similar to the cause, you know. In other words, let's say in terms of killing, the throwing karma of killing, let's say killing karma ripened at the time of death, the consciousness would zap into the scorpion womb or whatever, because that's the cause of, an, of suffering life. Now, but these other ones, these other ones, the actions similar to the cause, and then the other ones I'm going to talk about, they're like the residual result of, of killing. So if you can see from this time that a little kid pops out of the womb, they're also already into killing the snails and killing the ants, and they go fishing, and then they kill all their life. And they don't see the suffering. That's the action similar to the cause. Due to the past habit of killing, which hasn't been purified, then they get born, literally. Their mother hasn't. She's not a killer. No one taught them to kill. It's just in them, you know. That's due to karma. How come people multi-murder? How come people go off and multi-rape? How come people go off and become Mother Teresa? It's the, it's the, it's the action similar to the cause. They are, the, they are like being produced by their past habits. And the, the, so they talk about the force of karma. And this for me is a very powerful way to understand why we continue to do what we do and why it's so painful to change the garbage, you know, or why some multi-murderer powerfully compelled to kill 40 people. No one knows why in our Western world. You can't, I mean, we all try to look at their parents and see how come they're like this, but sometimes you can't find. You know, the Columbine two boys had very nice parents and no one can understand how come they came out of that, you know. Well, it's karma in Buddhist terms. Due to powerful imprints from past killing, which hasn't been purified, and due to the many karmic causes and conditions of meeting all these various people, they just compelled to kill, you know. So that's the action similar to the cause, what you do. Then there's the other one. You check the rest of the, your life. It's what happens to you, isn't it? What happens to you, your experiences. And this is called the experiences similar to the cause. Well, in terms of, for example, killing, the experience similar to the cause is being killed, dying young, getting sick. I mean, look at the world. Look at the world, you know. Look at the world. There's hardly a human who doesn't kill some kind of being, not to mention even killing other humans. There's hardly a human who doesn't kill something. It's even seen as good, you know, mostly in this culture. Even, even as a Catholic, excuse me, I was taught that God made these creatures for us to do what we like with. We can kill them, eat them, whatever we wish. That's kind of interesting. So the, the action similar to the cause is that you continue to kill. The experience similar to the cause is that you get killed or you die young or you get sick. That's the residual result of killing. Then the other one is called environmental karma. Even this environment... You know, we either think it came out of black holes, or we think God did it, or we think, oh, well, I don't know why it happened, nobody knows, you know, which is our common way of responding to things in our culture. No one knows, we say, just because we haven't discovered it, clever Westerners, you know. 
But according to Buddhism, it's the karmic result. Environmental karma is so the, 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 the environmental karmic result of killing is pollution. Really devastated environment, food and medicine, lousy, you know. You think about it, it's not it's not illogical energy. So even the karma, even the way, I mean, actually they talk in the esoteric teachings, and I think I heard in the Kala Chakra teachings, they talk very extensively about the relationship between the external and internal energy. The external, you know, like as we know, Buddhism, especially in the Tibetan medicine is based on this, earth, air, fire, water, the four elements, you know, which is very medieval too, Western medieval. But the fundamental nature of the external reality is made up of the four elements. And, and so the mind is the source, consciousness, mind is the source. So when that is imbalanced, there's the imbalance of the physical energy, which is called sickness. And Tibetan medicine is completely based on this principle. You know? Then in turn, the external environment Due to the collective karma of a group of people being in a certain situation, due to their past karma, you have, in, you have volcano, you have earthquake, you have harmonious, whatever it is, it's due to karma, you know. Because this is the, all this is the logical conclusion of not having an external creator. And nor the Western view of it merely being having its own laws, black holes and all stuff coming from its own side, having no effect from the consciousness. But the Buddhist view is everything is completely interdependent, you know, and the, and the consciousness, mind of sentient beings. Mm-hmm. If you want to find a creator, it's sentient beings' minds, but not in the magic wand sort of sense of creator, but in long-term evolutionary sense of creation, you know. These are the teachings of karma. I mean, this is all in Buddhist teachings. It's all there in the texts of India since day one, you know. And it happens to be in the Tibetan monasteries, they study this stuff very extensively. And it happens to be that the kind of mind I have I find this stuff huge and fascinating, not just intellectual, but you bring it to your life, you know. And the, and the four, I mean, the way you do purification every night, by regretting killing, let's say, by regretting sincerely killing, you purify it happening to you. By determining never to kill again, you purify continuing to kill. So then don't be surprised if you wake up next life and you burst into tears when you see a snail killed. Do you see my point? It's not an accident, you know. This is sort of logic in a way. I mean, it's interesting. We only had an hour. I'm so sorry. I, I hope that we'll have to deal with this. Definitely. No, I'm very happy. In this lifetime. Absolutely happy. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very, very okay. much. Okay. I mean, anyway, whatever. Excuse me. So, shall we finish, shall we? Or any questions? Was that enough? Shall we go? Mid- midday. Time to go, huh? I think that's kind of Okay. So I'll, can I do a little prayer to finish off with? Thank you. Yeah. Do a little prayer to finish? Okay. So this is like, we call it a dedication prayer. And what it is really saying, for one hour we've been together, okay? And for one hour, every one of us, isn't it? As many moments as there have been, there's a karmic seed planted on our mind. Because every single thought does count. Every, every, every thought is a karma. And it doesn't go astray. It has to bring a result, like every seed you plant. So we just rejoice, you know, for this one hour, each of us listening, thinking, contemplating, including me, even though I'm speaking. Whatever has gone in, whatever makes sense, whatever aspirations that have come from this, all this rich energy that we have just created for one hour, you know. May these seeds, may we nurture them strongly with our virtue from this next second on, and may they ripen as quickly as possible in the fruit of our own marvellous potential and our ability to benefit beings. I'll just sing a little prayer in Tibetan that says that. Gewadi <laughs> 
Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.